From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. To know if we are in for a vicious flu season on top of the COVID pandemic, we don't have to look into a crystal ball. We can look to the Southern Hemisphere, where the flu season was relatively mild. One clear reason for that is probably the social distancing and mask wearing that has gone on and you know, seems to do a pretty good job against COVID-19, but it also seems to work maybe even better against influenza and some of these other more cold-like viruses. It's not an absolute predictor, but it is encouraging. Then California to Hawaii in a boat with no motor. Tez Steinberg of Boulder rode for 70 days and he cried, sometimes out of fear, sometimes joy. He also hallucinated, got thrown around by big waves and live to tell. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Get your flu shot. We're hearing that from a chorus of healthcare professionals. And it seems Coloradans are listening, with vaccinations up nearly 70% from this time last year. People apparently hope to avoid a twindemic with COVID-19. So what is the outlook for flu season and where do we look to find out? CPR's Andrea Dukakis and Claire Cleveland join us. They're on our coronavirus reporting team. And hi, y'all. Hey. Andrea, you're going to start us out with some basics. Right. With a description of the flu, because I think it's fair to say what we sometimes think of as the flu may not be the flu. A lot of people will say, oh, I've had the flu, and they sometimes get it mixed up with other respiratory illnesses and think of the flu as something that upsets their stomach or gives them a cough and a runny nose. That's Dr. Eric France. He's chief medical officer at the state health department, and he says in reality the flu's a lot more extreme. It hits you like a hammer over the head. You've got chills, muscle aches, fevers. You're sitting on the floor in your kitchen with your baby there wanting to be fed and just having no energy for it. And this lasts for a week to 10 days. The state has a publicity campaign to get people vaccinated for flu. It sounds like it's working. That's right. People are getting their flu shots. Part of it is that the vaccine was available earlier this year. Officials want to reduce that risk of a so-called twindemic. Dr. France thinks the biggest reason for the increase is that the pandemic has made people extra worried about getting sick. Today, with COVID in our community, the fact that we see people who are getting sick, we say, boy, I should really also get that flu shot. I've heard this term twindemic over and over again, Claire. How, how real is the risk? It's hard to tell. Public health officials have worried about the potential for months. Uh, Back in August, I spoke with Dr. Michelle Barron. She's medical director of infection prevention at the University of Colorado Hospital. She said she was worried about flu and COVID, but she was also worried about routine vaccination rates, uh, like for MMR or chickenpox. They dipped this year, uh, in some cases by as much as 40 percent. 
People just haven't been going to the doctor as often. Are we ripe also for measles? This is my trifecta of pain, as I call it. And that's what we've been planning for. And we're also really trying hard as part of our strategy to like do something about that. Like there are things we can mitigate. So flu and measles, we can mitigate if we can vaccinate. Now, if there were a twindemic, the fear is that flu and COVID combined could overwhelm hospitals and further strain a healthcare system that's been put to the test this year. Here again is Dr. France from the State Health Department. The burden for our doctors and nurses who are busy during flu season to have another hard respiratory virus at the same time is just extremely demanding and exhausting, really. Andrea, the flu vaccine differs from year to year, depending on which strains scientists think will be most prevalent. So how do they decide which strains to go after? Well, labs all over the world are part of the process. They collect viral specimens and determine what strains of flu are floating around. And then they look at where those strains have been in the past few months and where they seem to be going. Dr. Richard Webby is with St. Jude uh, Children's Research Hospital. It's in Memphis. And he's part of this global consortium that advises the World Health Organization on all of this. And they actually have to make separate decisions for the different hemispheres where the winters are on on opposite ends of the calendar. So we meet once in the end of February to make recommendations for the upcoming Northern Hemisphere flu season. Actually, we just finished a meeting um, where we looked at what strains should go on into the Southern Hemisphere flu vaccine. So it is actually a continual circle where they look at our activity, we look at theirs, and round and round and round goes. So they're having to make that call about seven or eight months before each hemisphere's winter flu season. And that's so that they can have time to make the vaccines. Right. Claire, how reliable, like how protective is the flu shot? Well, there's no guarantee each year that the strains selected will be the ones circulating through the population, like Andrea had explained. Each year, the effective rate varies and often hovers around 40 percent. It's too early to say how effective this year's flu vaccine will be. But even if the strains selected don't end up being correct, there's evidence that getting a flu shot decreases the length of sickness and the the chance of a hospital stay. Okay, so that's good news no matter what the percentage is. Mm -hmm. How long does a flu shot last? About six months, but it's most effective for the first three months. Flu season typically starts in September, peaks through December and February, and can last into May. Healthcare professionals recommend getting your flu shot before Halloween, but if you miss that deadline, you should still get one. Andrea, based on what happened in the Southern Hemisphere this past winter, can scientists make a judgment about how effective the vaccine will be in the U.S.? Well, Dr. Webby at St. Jude says he thinks scientists mostly got this year's components right. That's reassuring. Yeah, though an emergency physician here in Colorado likes to call all of this an imperfect crystal ball. This is Dylan Leuten of Swedish Medical Center in Englewood. The flu strains mutate, so you can have increasing virulence across the flu season. At different times, different strains may predominate and be more or less virulent. And what hits hard in Australia may be different than what hits hard in North America. Wouldn't the solution to all this just be to jam-pack the flu vaccine with, like, protection for a bunch of different strains? Well, Dr. Eric France says that would be great, but we're not there yet. There is this ideal out there that you would someday get a flu vaccine 
one vaccine would cover multiple different types of flu. And then if you succeed with that, you may not need to be able to predict the one that will be in your neighborhood. And maybe two, it would be a vaccine that would not require to be repeated every year. Oh, that sounds dreamy. Mm -hmm. Um, So how did the flu season go in the Southern Hemisphere? I mean, again, acknowledging that it's not a perfect predictor. Right. And as we know, there are also lots of strange things happening this year or not happening. People aren't getting together as much and they are wearing masks for the most part. Here's Dr. Webby again of St. Jude. If you look at what's actually gone on in the Southern Hemisphere winter season that, you know, they're just coming out of, there's been really, really low influenza activity. And, you know, one clear reason for that is probably the social distancing and mask wearing that has gone on and you know seems to do a pretty good job against COVID-19 but it also seems to work maybe even better against influenza and some of these other more cold-like viruses. Though Dr. Jean Kuttner, she's chief medical officer at UC Health, she cautions that this year in particular Australia and the U.S. aren't necessarily an apples-to-apples comparison. During their flu season, they were very locked down. We are less locked down here at the time that flu is set to come. And we're, you know, headed indoors because at some point it's actually going to get cold. And, you know, we're all worried about what that's going to do to COVID transmission, which is the same time as flu transmission. So I don't know how much we can use to predict, honestly. Dr. Webby says some countries in the Southern Hemisphere and South America might be more predictive for the U.S. He says, like us, they've had a more lax approach to masks and social distancing. But even if we look at countries that haven't done such a good job at controlling COVID-19, even their flu seasons have been low in the Southern Hemisphere. And if you're an optimist, it's actually telling us maybe we won't have much flu activity. And there's something else to consider. International travel has been scaled back everywhere. So you don't have the flu spreading as much as it usually does. And obviously, that's the hope for COVID-19 as well. It's fascinating stuff. So in the future, Andrea, even a post-COVID-19 future, should everyone just be wearing masks in public during flu season? Yeah, maybe. Wearing masks during outbreaks has been a cultural norm in Asia for a long time. But Dr. Webby's skeptical. Certainly you can make an argument that wearing masks full time or particularly during winter season maybe is a really good idea. You know, I, I would imagine that's going to be a hard sell, but on the surface, it seems to make a lot of sense. Now, I know it's early, but is there any indication of how many flu cases doctors have seen in Colorado so far? I checked with a couple hospital systems. UC Health has had no flu patients yet this season. They had five at this point last year. Health One hasn't had any either at this point. Um, Doctors I talked to say there is the silver lining to COVID-19. We'll likely get better at controlling the flu in the future. And that's because of what we've learned and practiced around social distancing and mask wearing. Okay, fascinating. So what we're learning from COVID-19 applies to other viruses as well. Claire, just a few more questions. Uh, How do I tell if it's COVID or the flu? You can't. Okay. (laughs) You got to get a test. (laughs) A test, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the symptoms are just too similar. Um, But the first thing a healthcare professional is likely to ask you if you have symptoms is whether or not you got a flu shot. Um, That'll inform their course of action. If you have any flu-like symptoms, you should stay home, stay away from others, get a test, and monitor your health. 
You've gotten a lot of questions, I know, Claire, from people about the flu season. And mm-hmm. one was whether you can get COVID-19 and flu at the same time. You can. Scientists are still studying how common a dual infection may be, but it is possible. So if you haven't already, you should get your flu shot. You should get your flu shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, another question we got, whether a flu vaccine could negatively impact a coming COVID-19 vaccine, a kind of interaction thing. I'll let Emily Cheshire, a nurse practitioner who runs the flu clinics for UC Health, answer that one. We can't answer that question 100% from a scientific standpoint right now. And that's because there's no COVID vaccine. Flu vaccines can be given safely and effectively and are recommended by the CDC to be given simultaneously with the long list of other vaccines. Good perspective there. Well, Andrea, Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks. They're really interesting stuff with the hemispheres. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. CPR's Claire Cleveland and Andrea Dukakis. They're on our COVID-19 reporting team. Alone in the middle of the ocean in a motorless boat. That's how Tez Steinberg of Boulder spent his summer. He rode 2,700 miles from California to Hawaii. He was at sea for 70 days. He did some math and suspected that at times, the closest human beings were aboard the International Space Station. Waves got so big, he strapped himself to his bunk in a helmet. It's been brutal. It's been brutal. Uh, I had a really hard week. I broke an oar right here um i broke the tiller arm broke the tiller arm on my rudder i had a flooded hatch i had water in my stern cabin uh and those are all the external things the bigger challenges are you know what goes on in my head honestly there were moments i really wanted to quit it's been hard something of a video diary there steinberg is only the eighth person to make this crossing and the only one to do it successfully on the first attempt. And Tez, welcome to our program. So glad to be here. I mean, briefly describe this boat for us and how you had to outfit it to survive. So it is an ocean rowing boat. It's 23 feet long, handmade of carbon fiber in the U.S. by a company called Spindrift Rowing Company, which is women-owned, women-run. And it is entirely outfitted to support a rower at sea for months with no resupplies. So is there a battery on board, some sort of solar power or what? Yeah, it's really well outfitted. So I had sponsorship from SunPower who provided my solar panels, a big 200 amp hour battery bank. That ran my water maker, my communications equipment. I also brought about half a million calories of food. And um, half a million calories. When, when you say water, so is that like uh, desal? Yeah, I had a desalinator unit. So irony is, you know, floating above water I can't drink, but actually it's my supply of fresh water. I think you named the boat Moderation. I did. Okay. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. It really is, because nothing about this seems moderate. <laughs> it's true. I thought this might be my chance. You know, I've never been that great at moderation. Maybe now I'll give it a go. Mm-hmm. You launched from California in the dark of night, and that's common for ocean-going rowers because it's often when conditions are the best. Once the sun rose that first day, what was it like and what was going through your mind? Ryan, that was such an amazing day. I've never been out to sea. So just the first day was already a huge shock for me to look around, and it was overcast, so I couldn't see land. And I just began looking around 
observing where I was, this watery world with waves rising and falling beneath me, and it was almost a shock that the boat didn't tip over in these little waves. Little did I know what was coming in just a couple of days. But that first day was just magical. I saw whales as far as the eye could see, from morning until night, humpbacks just jumping out of the water, dolphins racing towards me and diving under the boat. They seemed to know you were there. They seemed like they were guiding me out to sea, to be honest. And it was it was such a calm day that the whales were feeding. So I was treated to a special, special thing that very few people get to see, especially alone with no one else in sight. I watched the humpbacks circle bait balls, blowing up bubbles, bubble yep. netting, right? Big rings of bubbles around the fish, around the schools, and then leaping up with their mouths open agape and just grabbing whole mouthfuls of fish. And I watched this all around me all day. I want to pick up on something you said. That was your first time at sea? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Was this a fool's errand? I mean, you must have done some training. But goodness, this is uh, like learning to run before you walk. Well, ocean rowing is one of those odd things where the hardest part is in your head. And actually, I say odd, but truthfully, I think that has a it's more common than we think. So, of course, I did training. Of course, I learned what it would take. I knew theoretically how to use my equipment. Mm -hmm. I just hadn't rowed my boat out to sea before. I wasn't a rower or a sailor before this began. But with ocean rowing, once you learn some technical skills and have some basic level of fitness, it becomes a question of how committed are you to going through with this? Because you'll be faced with challenge after challenge. And it's ultimately clarity of mind and and resilience and and a clear heart that'll get you through it. You foreshadowed in one of your previous answers, little did I know that something was about to happen. Uh, and, and that is to say conditions changed. Quickly. Yeah. Describe that change. What, what did they get to, those conditions? So on day two, I began crossing the continental shelf. So where the land begins and you have a beach, it's not like the ocean is suddenly thousands of feet deep there. And off of California, it's gradual. For 30 to 50 miles, depending where you are along the coast, the sea might be just a few hundred feet deep, Mm. and then suddenly it drops off. Now, crossing that point, there are massive waves. I thought I would see a line or two of breaking waves, but what I saw were breaking waves in every direction Mm. for days. For days? Yeah, day two and three. It was absolutely terrifying. I felt like I was rowing into Mordor with overcast skies and just these huge gray waves breaking all over. And as the wind picked up to 20, then 25, then over 30 miles per hour, I couldn't fight it. And so I ended up spending the next four days strapped down in my cabin with my helmet on, really convinced that this was the worst idea of my entire life. I mean, at that point, you just didn't know if you'd survive. I was genuinely scared uh, for my life. And the thing is, I, I didn't feel comfortable telling anyone that because I knew that this stuff happens. The boat is designed to handle it. Uh If it capsized, it would self-right. I had a para-anchor in, which is like an underwater parachute, and it helps stabilize the boat in these heavy seas. And I was in touch via satellite phone with the woman who built the boat, Sonia Baumstein, and and who was advising me on how to navigate weather. And and it became a question of, I I could admit to her what I'm going through, but I didn't want to admit to my friends or family to make them scared. And so I kind of had to hold on to that myself and just literally sit with it. 
You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking to Tess Steinberg of Boulder, whose solo rode 2,700 miles from California to Hawaii. And clearly, because he's on our show, Live to Tell, <laughs> when you're strapped in for days at a time because the sea is so rough, you're obviously not rowing. That's right. So is it just that you're staying relatively still? Or are, you're waiting for the waves to subside so you can row again? Or you're hoping the waves take you in a certain direction? At that point, the waves near a coast, the waves are typically coming into the shore, right? And so at this point, I was just... Uh, less than 100 miles offshore, oh. and those waves were still coming from the west, blowing east, and hence pushing me back towards shore. Now that underwater parachute helps me stay still. It grabs the current beneath the waves, about 30 feet below the surface, and so that stabilizes me. So those days I really wasn't going very far. Interesting. And at the end of the first week, I had made very little progress, and at that point also had to assess a fair bit of damage that occurred during during those days. Yeah, you described in that video journal things breaking left and right. Yeah, I broke an oar in the first week. It snapped in, in those heavy seas. I ended up accidentally flooding uh, my back cabin in the boat. I just didn't close the door as well as I needed to, and I sleep in the other cabin, so I didn't notice until there were several inches of standing water. My tiller arm broke. That's how I use uh, the steer. The steering line connects to the tiller arm to the rudder. And so I found myself fixing my rudder on day seven with epoxy and a bolt and just MacGyvering it and thinking, <laughs> oh my goodness, is this going to last another 2,500 miles? So the, really the hardest part of the journey, do I have it right, was maybe the first fifth of it or something? Uh, yes. The, the first the first week was the most acutely difficult yeah. where you're, I was strapped in the cabin. But honestly, the first month was really difficult because it was it took a month before conditions started being supportive or the wind and waves weren't pushing me back. Did you ever get seasick in all this? Thankfully not. That <gasps> is one thing that went really well. Yeah, that's a nice surprise. And then I have to think that that you know the the whales and the scene that you described there was lovely, but at a certain point it all has to start looking the same. Yes and no. You know, what's amazing is over the course of this row, week after week, the conditions gradually change. And I never got bored looking out oh. at the wind and waves and, and, and seeing the clouds. And it's such a beautiful place. I think co people in Colorado could really appreciate this. If you go on a hike, you might go on the same hike by your house all the time, but it's always a little different, isn't it? I suppose, and, and one must train oneself to look for the differences, I suppose, too. That, that is a mind exercise as well. And so much of this was in your head as well as in your body. Tez, I, I do wonder if your mind begins to play tricks on you. One, because you're alone for so long. And two, because uh, despite subtle changes, it can be a repetitious scenery, you know? Absolutely. I experienced several hallucinations, especially early on in the trip when I was most sleep-deprived. Everything from hearing people chatting, dogs barking, just indistinct noises, and then certain specific things, too, when I turn and look to see who it was, because it just seemed so clear. But, of course, I would just see the ocean. Wow. Dogs barking. Yeah. It must have been really unsettling. Actually, it wasn't. It just seemed normal in a in a way <laughs> maybe that's what the brain is trying to do is to create Normalize. some sense of what yeah it sounds like when you're safe 
on land in your bed. Uh-huh. Did you have fears of other vessels coming into contact with you or hitting you for that matter? Before launching, it was one of my biggest concerns. And 20 minutes into the trip, that became a reality. Oh. Yeah. I you was, really were met uh, with it, it at the top, yeah, weren't you? immediately in Monterey Bay, in, just in the marina. So a rower rows backwards. You can't see where you're going. You can look over your shoulder, but in my case, my cabin blocks my view. So I have to stand up to take a look. Wow. Like you said, I, I launched in the dead of night, just after midnight. And I was looking over my shoulder every few minutes and didn't see anything. And all of a sudden, there was a fishing boat looming over me. And we bumped into each other. Thankfully, there wasn't any serious damage, so I was able to keep going. The image of you facing backwards, I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me that that's the setup. You see where you're coming from and have to imagine and visualize where you're going. And, of course, look every now and again. And look. You, you have a <laughs> compass, though, right? I have more than a compass, but absolutely there's a compass on deck. I have a chart plotter that shows my exact location. I have an automatic identification system which shows my position and other vessels in the area so I can see them as well. And that goes off with an alarm if there's a collision that might happen. And, and that came close at one point, too. It did? Yeah. There was a tanker coming my way, and I didn't see it. I heard the alarm. And it was just 11 minutes off, but aiming right for me. So I got on my radio, contacted the, the, the bridge, and explained, I'm in a rowboat. In most cases, the boat contacting the larger vessel, the smaller boat would have to move. But I couldn't. So <laughs> right. I said, hey, you guys got to not hit me here in more maritime language. And they kindly averted. You made reference earlier to sleep deprivation. Mm. How do you get a good night's sleep? <laughs> because it, it strikes me that your mind would always be on the journey. On the one hand, you're very tired. So it can be easy to fall asleep. In the earlier parts of the trip, I was able to sleep better. It was just a question of if I could allow myself to sleep because at times I faced countercurrents that would push me backwards when I got off the oars. And so that's when I was really experiencing... Right, you're not rowing when you're sleeping. Exactly. As a solo rower, that's why I just... I was the eighth person to do this route as a soloist, but a couple of dozen have done it in teams because they will overcome some of those weather conditions more easily. Now, I would, early on in the trip, row three hours, sleep for two, or try to. It was really difficult to stick to that schedule. And during that time... When I wanted to fall asleep, I easily could. However, it doesn't add up to a great amount of rest in the in the course of a day. Later on in the trip, when I was able to sleep through the night, and I, I would row during the day and sleep at night, I actually just felt so dirty. Even even bathing and cleaning off, I, I my skin just began to crawl, and that kept me up at night, actually. Interesting. Just the salt and just... Uh, wearing out a rash that I had as well. Um, it, it, your body breaks down out there. It's just part of the experience. Your destination was a port on Oahu. Do you remember the first time you saw Hawaiian land? <laughs> of course I do. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. What stands out in your mind about that moment? It was just absolutely surreal. I hadn't seen land in almost 70 days. It was on, on the morning of my 71st day. Hadn't seen people in all that time. Not a plane in eight weeks. Not a plane. Not a plane. Not, not Remarkable. Since, yeah, the la- I saw two planes when I was near L.A. and then nothing. And no boats for several weeks as well. And to see land, 
it's really hard to put into words. It felt so surreal and almost like it shouldn't be there. Because yeah, of, you might have wondered if it was real, yeah. given that you'd hallucinated <laughs> yeah. earlier in the journey. <laughs> yeah. How did this change how you think about the ocean? I mean, it sounds to me like you're not a guy who, you know, grew up with the sea and spent lots of time on the sea. So uh, the ocean must have occupied a kind of space in your brain to a certain mm. point, And then you met it head yeah. on. Yeah, I grew up around a lot of nature in the Adirondack Mountains, but not with big water. And so I believed the things we hear about it and the way we talk about it and the way we commonly refer to the ocean. It's like raw power, yeah. so intense. And, and of course, there were moments of pure strength that's just frightening. But the way I came to see the ocean is just a place of beauty and majesty and love and, and elegance the refined little pieces of the ocean that I could observe being just feet off of the surface. Ryan, there's a small creature that makes its home amongst the bubbles. It's like one in 10,000 bubbles moves in its own direction. And for <laughs> nearly 70 days, I just thought I was crazy because I would talk to this bubble because it went in a different direction. I was like, what animates you? How are you going against a the grain? Against the wind, leaping off of the water, but it's so small. And then finally I saw it. It's a little, little, little bug. And it just dawned on me, you know, it made it so clear how elegant this ocean really is. It's a beautiful place. Speaking of like small pieces of things, though, did you see much in the way of pollution? Every day. No. Oh. Every day. I saw a lot of plastic, uh, plastic fishing nets, plastic crates, water bottles, water jugs, uh, bottle caps, string, rope, PVC pipe all day long and it's honestly heartbreaking there's so much and I didn't go through what's called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch I went around it and still there's so much plastic I could reach in with my hand and pull it out well thank you so much for being with us Tez it's been a pleasure to speak with you thank you for having me this summer Tez Steinberg of Boulder solo road 2700 miles from California to Hawaii by the way he has kept the boat in Hawaii because he imagines crossing again in the other direction. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This year's elections could be the most important of our lifetimes. As you get ready to vote, look to CPR News for context and clarity in our daily reporting. And visit CPR.org for a free voter's guide, a comprehensive resource to help as you consider everything on the ballot. Get to know the issues and candidates you're unfamiliar with, including third parties. Find the CPR News 2020 Voter's Guide at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado State University was rocked recently by stories of racist behavior in its athletic department and accusations that it wasn't doing enough to protect student athletes from COVID-19. So the school ordered an independent investigation. Students and staff that were questioned, some of them dispute the scenario that's been painted. Miles Bloomhart of the Coloradoan newspaper in Fort Collins helped break the original story. And while he says this independent report is good news for the university, <laughs> some student athletes say it doesn't tell the whole story. And Miles, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Remind us just briefly of some of what your reporting found when it came <clears throat> to racial insensitivity and to COVID-19 precautions. 
staff for COVID-19, it was uh, a number of players coming forward and, and uh, from d- different sports, actually, uh, and volleyball, football um, mainly, and um, bringing up uh, incidents where they believe that there was uh, the, the reports to the CSU Public Health um, Department uh, was different than the, re- um, than, than the narrative that they gave to them. They thought that maybe coaches in the athletic administration was um, going into those reports and changing them um, so that players could practice. Mm. Um, there was also players who said <clears throat> that um, assistant football coaches told them that um, not to report COVID-19 uh, symptoms because that would mean they would have to miss practice and that could influence um, the amount of playing time they have. On the racial insensitivity part, um, there was numerous stories, both under uh, current head football coach Steve Adazio and former uh, head football coach Mike Bobo, of yeah. uh, numerous uh, incidents of racial insensitivity uh, and abuse. And so CSU, in after your reporting, hired an independent firm, this was in August, to investigate. What, what would you say is the biggest takeaway from the new report? And maybe we tackle the COVID-19 stuff and then the racial insensitivity stuff. Yeah, I think it's important to know it's not an independent investigation because CSU was paying uh, Hush Blackwell um, to do the report. It's an external investigation, hmm. um, but it's not an independent investigation when <clears throat> when the, the firm that you hired, you're paying for that service. So I don't believe that is independent, but it is external. Um, and, and mostly what it found uh, was that uh, a substantial majority of student athletes um, said that uh, they didn't see any issues with the COVID-19 protocols. There were no concerns. And it also found that most student athletes um, who participated in the investigation um, disputed allegations of pervasive racial inequities or harassment. And I found it odd that the word pervasive would be in there. Um, because that would actually reflect differently. Um, I can tell you that we interviewed more than 30 people for our investigations, student athletes and staff, um, which is a very good portion, you know, of the, of the athletic department and teams. And, um, we corroborated all of our, um, reporting on that, which showed that, yes, not everybody is impacted or uh, affected by this but that there are certainly a large enough uh, number of people um, who came forward that um, it, it does appear that this is an issue in the athletic department. And the stories they told you were quite specific. I mean, it's not that they came to you with just, you know, generic uh, complaints about environment, but you know, very specific incidents. Just remind us of a few that stand out in your mind. Well, and, and, and the report did the same thing. There are very specific incidents in the report um, that, that say the same thing. Um, you know, there, there's any number of them. There are, um, you know, uh, Mike Bobo telling a, a, a dark-skinned uh, athlete, uh, particularly dark-skinned, to smile um, so that, you know, they could, they could see his face. That was during a meeting when the lights went out. Uh, Mike Bobo said to some of his assistant coaches he had a white coach who has a black wife and a black coach who has a a white wife. And at a meeting, uh, it was reported um, by somebody at the meeting uh, that 
you know, he, he said, next time that I hire a, a assistant coach, I want to make sure they have a black wife because he wanted a black wife to meet a black uh, recruit. Um, he named, uh, Mike Bobo named um, some of his uh, formations, uh, a derogatory term uh, for, for, for black people. Um, Steve Adazio has been accused of, of berating and humiliating a, a black uh, football player um, because of his uh, academics. Um, uh, there was lots of uh, people who came forward to me and, and reported that, uh, that Steve Adazio does not believe in COVID-19 and believes it's a distraction and has a similar attitude toward Black Lives Matter. So those are just some of the situations. And then there were other ones that came up um, in the investigation as well. Uh, very specific, very specific incidents. So like you said, um, it would be really difficult to make these up. So does the report recommend corrective action on either front? And what has CSU said about its findings? Uh, there are, uh, well, of course, CSU liked it because they, they cherry-picked some of the highlights out of it, which there, you know, there was some, some highlights for CSU to, um, to report upon. Uh, there were also three recommendations, um, which basically just involved um, initiatives that would further the discussion um, on racial insensitivity, um, those types of topics. There were three of them. Um, and right now, uh, it's, it's probably too early, you know, to really to, to ask um, CSU to implement those yet, but um, the university says they're working on those. Do you want to just briefly name what the highlights were for CSU? What are they doing well? Um, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't really say what they're doing well in the, in the report. It just says um, that a substantial amount, uh, a number of athletes, uh, student athletes and staff that were, um, that were interviewed said that they didn't feel that um, COVID-19 protocols were, were, um, uh, were uh, uh, broached uh, or excuse me, broached, were, were broken. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, they, and then that, uh, most of the students, um, didn't feel that or most of the student athletes and staff didn't feel, um, that there was pervasive, pervasive. um, racial insensitivity. Yeah. Let's talk briefly before we go about CSU's football season originally canceled, but set to begin later this month. And, uh, how, how will those games move forward? Just briefly, Miles. Uh, well, they start uh, October 24th at home against uh, New Mexico. I believe that's a 7 p.m. start. Um, so, you know, we'll see how long that season lasts. As we know, there are fits and starts in the college football season, uh, right. which has started in some conferences already. Um, so uh, uh, at, at present, there will be no uh, – it doesn't appear that there will be any fans allowed at Canvas Stadium. They have four home games this year. Um We'll see if that changes. Um, that all has to be worked through um, the county and state if that's going to happen. But at present, um, the last uh, that we know, um, there'll be no fans at any of those four games. Thank you so much once again, Miles, for sharing your reporting with us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Take care. Reporter Miles Blumhardt of the Fort Collins, Coloradoan.
The Civilian Conservation Corps was part of FDR's New Deal. In the 1930s, the Corps built massive public projects and revived landscapes. Now there's interest in a CCC 2.0 for an age of pandemics and wildfires. CPR Sam Brash reports. If you live in Colorado, there's a good chance you've already visited what many people think is the CCC's greatest achievement, Red Rocks Amphitheater. That's my beloved over there. I always call her she and her because she strikes me as a she. Don't know why, she just is. <laughs> this is Gwen Gano. She's a ranger who oversees Red Rocks for Denver Mountain Parks. And in a weird twist of government handovers, her office is an old CCC camp. The same camp where the young men who built Red Rocks worked, ate, slept, and woke up. So at 6 a.m. they would have heard... Gano loves leading tours of the mess halls and bunkhouses. She and other rangers have filled it with old CCC antiques. Foot lockers, belt buckles, pickaxes. With the pandemic, she says the history of the Corps feels more relevant than ever. I looked up our current unemployment rate with the pandemic, and it just ticked under 8%. And lately, it looks like many people like the idea of bringing back the program, or it's some version of it. A recent poll found that about 75% of likely U.S. voters support a new CCC to plant trees and fight fires. That includes 74% of Republicans. Meanwhile, multiple Democratic lawmakers have submitted bills to bring back the service. That includes Congressman Joe Neguse, who represents Boulder. This year, we are faced with, in my view, the confluence of different challenges that require policymakers to be bold. Nugu says unemployment is just one of those problems. The other has been all too visible this summer. The massive wildfires devastating the West. The need for forest management, right? Ensuring that there is less fuel in the forests as well to reduce you know, the risk of these catastrophic wildfires uh, is very real. The demand in Colorado alone is enormous. An upcoming state report finds an area the size of Delaware needs immediate attention to address forest health, watershed protection threats, and fire mitigation risk. Neguse's bill and other Democratic CCC plans aims to hire young people to take on the problem. There's no chance that'll be considered until after the election. But in a lot of ways, those visions for a CCC are already alive, just at a smaller scale. On an early morning at a park in Adams County, Hannah Tresh loads logs into a chipper. The 23-year-old is a member of Mile High Youth Corps, one of hundreds of state and local conservation corps already at work across the country. She joined after growing disillusioned with her job in marketing. I want this to be my office, you know? I want to be working outside at least three out of five days of the week. Tresh's crew is currently removing invasive trees, but she's looking forward to getting back to fire mitigation work this winter. Working out there, it's cooler. Um, I'm loving them. I love the mountains, and it was actually a camping crew. So you're constantly, you're constantly on, you, you know? <laughs> Her job already offers a pretty good idea of how a new CCC would be different from the original. In the 1930s, the Corps was run by the military and almost only included unmarried white men. The new version would theoretically welcome everyone and probably expand existing civilian programs. But Tresh says more people deserve the opportunity she's had through the program. With, with COVID and, and with the election coming up, a lot of people can feel so helpless. So to just feel like you're, you're doing something about something is so, so rewarding. 
It's the same feeling Gwen Gano, the Denver Park Ranger, has tried to preserve at the old CCC camp. The program didn't just offer jobs, a meal, and education. She says it offered a sense of purpose. It gave them prideful work, and it's, that's one of the things we talk about today, right, is, is, well, how much pride is there sitting at home collecting a, an unemployment check? She imagines it would feel a lot better to wake up at the camp and look up at the colossal achievement as something like Red Rocks. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. CC boys keep a moving on, building the country, not a tearing it down. CC boys keep a moving on, a picking them up and a putting them down. CC boys keep moving on, building the country, not a tearing it down. It's a bit of an earworm there. You can see pictures of the old Red Rocks CCC camp at CPR.org. Finally today, imagine playing a guitar that's missing a string when you enter a music contest. That is what Nina de Freitas found herself doing in April when she submitted her song, What Will It Be?, to NPR's Tiny Desk Competition. So what led to this moment? Well, De Freitas had contracted COVID-19 and was out of commission for nearly a month. Once she was cleared to leave quarantine, she visited her mother, and that's when De Freitas suddenly remembered the entry deadline for Tiny Desk, realized she'd left her guitar at home. So she turned to an option at her mother's house out of desperation. That was like my first guitar and it's messed up and broken because like at one point my when my little sister was like five she tried to carry it and then it fell down the stairs so like the action on it is like extremely high because it's just messed up and then yeah there's a missing string so it was actually kind of hard to play just because like i really had to press down luckily the song that i sang didn't really need the last string so it wasn't really that big of a deal the the actual most difficult thing was just how high the action was. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So she didn't win Tiny Desk this year, but De Freitas is looking forward to her new EP, which she hopes to release early next year. Her most recent single is from last December, Keeps Me Coming Back.
Nina DeFreitas of Denver, featured by our colleagues at Indy 1023 for Latin Heritage Month. For more Latin music from Colorado artists, find a favorites list Indy put together at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.